Welcome to episode 93 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey from March 16th, 2020, recording live from our studio in Spenceport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC podcast and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. And I'm here with John Gailey, who is recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. And joining us remotely from Rochester, New York, uh, John Alvarez, Senior Nurse Consultant with AHS. Also from Rochester, New York, Alex Borneman, Director of Operations with AHS. From Atlanta, Georgia, Zach Kaleritis, Financial Consultant with AHS. John Van Valkenburg, the President of the New York State Association of Surgery Centers, should be joining us. And we're hoping that Judy D'Ambrosia, um, our Director of Educational Services, will be able to make it. She is in Florida, so she is heading to her computer. <laughs> right. Speak, I She's believe. having some technical problems. <laughs> and uh, thank you all for joining us here. I mean, right my level down a little bit. Uh, we are uh, still learning how to use our equipment here and use uh, the system, so uh, thank you for everybody that has um, uh, been patient with us. We are at 24 people already on air, and we expect that to go probably uh, north of 70 uh, by the time the day is through. We, as many of you know, uh, we have been in touch with a lot of you throughout the day. Uh, what we're going to try to do today is address some of the questions that have come up. Uh, we have somebody's uh, uh, keyboard uh, sounds, so either mute or quiet down a little bit. Thank you. Um, uh, so uh, we're going to try to address some of the issues that uh, uh, have been constant questions that we've received. Uh, we are uh, scripted here, but uh, if you have questions, please type it into the uh, section in the uh, Podbean app uh, where you can type in questions or uh, comments or email us, uh, sue your monitoring uh, uh, comments at ASCPodcast.com. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll answer as best we can. And if you have an urgent question, uh, text or email us and say that you want to go on air, and we'd be glad to do that. Uh, also, Ann Geyer uh, might be joining us later. She uh, um, uh, has expressed an interest, but uh, we're not quite sure uh, where she is, but I'm sure she'll be talking to us shortly. I, I want to start off, uh, let's just be a little lighthearted, um, because I know it's important everybody understand and get an update on our puppy situation. So we have we have chosen a puppy. Uh, we don't have a name for her. We, right now, we just call her Miss Green because she's wearing a green uh, collar. Collar. Yeah. yeah. So so we have some, uh, some, some very happy things going on in our lives, and I know that uh, that is important. Um, uh, that is, <laughs> that's a, yeah, all of us need to find, uh, you know, uh, happy points in our, our life right now. I have somebody trying to call in. I don't recognize the name, though. Can you just text me so I know who you are? Um, uh, so let's let's. Uh, so biggest question that's been asked uh, over and over of me today is: uh, Is there any mandate to shut down? Uh, there is no mandate to shut down that we are aware. Of. There certainly is none at the national level. There is none in the states that we monitor. I can't speak for every single state, um, but uh, at this point, we're not aware of any mandate. If there is going to be a mandate. It is not likely going to be across the board. Uh, so one of the things that's been uh, coming out uh, lately is, uh, for example, the um, uh, ASGE, AGA, ASCG, AASLD uh, from the uh, GI Center side and the American College of Surgeons has recommended um, to uh, discontinue uh, non um uh, urgent, um, help me, non-essential, non-essential uh, procedures. Um, that that will be a thing that we're going to want to talk about. Sue, can you kind of uh, uh, mention it? Let's start off with the GI centers. The, what the joint statement from ASGE, AGA, 
ASCG and uh, AALSD said yes. So the key points of this, they strongly, they suggested that you strongly consider rescheduling elective non-urgent endoscopic procedures. Some non-urgent procedures are higher priority and may need to be performed. Examples are um, cancer evaluations, prostatic removals, evaluation of um, significant concerning symptoms. Classification of procedures into non-urgent or postponing procedures. Um, classification of procedures into non-urgent, postpone, and non-urgent perform may be useful. Of note, the Surgeon General on 314 advised hospitals to postpone all elective surgeries. Um, they also suggest pre-screening all patients for high-risk exposure or symptoms. Patients should be asked about history of fever or respiratory symptoms. Family members or close contacts with similar symptoms. Um, any contact with a confirmed case of COVID-19 and recent travel to high-risk areas. Avoid bringing patients or their escorts into the medical facility who are over age 65 or have one of the CDC-recognized risks listed above. And should yeah, I go and on? Yeah, and then the American College of Surgeons on, I think this was on Saturday. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't remember when, uh, issued a statement also. And they said, um, each hospital health system and surgeon should thoughtfully review all scheduled elective procedures with a plan to minimize, postpone, or cancel electively scheduled operations, endoscopies, or other invasive procedures until we have passed the predicted inflection point in the exposure graph and can be confident that our healthcare infrastructure can support a potentially rapid and overwhelming uptick in critical patient care needs and suggest that you immediately minimize use of essential items needed to care for patients, including but not limited to ICU beds, personal protective equipment, terminal cleaning supplies, and ventilators. There are many asymptomatic patients who are nevertheless um, shedding virus and are unwittingly exposing other inpatients, outpatients, and healthcare providers to the risk of, con of contracting COVID-19. And they suggest that inpatient facilities shift elective, urgent, inpatient diagnostic and surgical procedures to outpatient settings when feasible. So this brings up the, the subject that uh, we really want to uh, talk about uh, now, which is start thinking about what procedures you do that are, are critical. Uh, at first, when we started thinking about this, I think we all pretty much thought that uh, we're amateur surgery centers, uh, hey, everything's elective, but that's not the case at all. So start thinking about what you might do in your specialty. For example, retina procedures, if you're being done in an eye surgery center, uh, those are certainly urgent cases that can't, uh, can't wait. Likewise, uh, uh, if, you are, uh, if you have an affiliation with a, a physician group that uh, is practicing in the hospital, you might want to consider encouraging those cases to come to the surgery center. And we're going to talk about 1135 waivers later on where you might be able to move those cases a lot faster. So start if you're an eye surgery center, start thinking about that, or if you have a relationship with eye surgery centers. Now, under the 1135 waiver, um, that has to be initiated by the hospital with the governmental agency in order to enact 1135. And again, we'll talk about that in a, in a few minutes. Uh, also, uh, we're, we've been thinking about GI uh, procedures, and not all the procedures are screening, obviously. So you might want to consider uh, and talk to your doctors about what types of cases would be uh, uh, something that should come uh, to the surgery center, should stay in the surgery center. Talk to your doctors about this. Um, we, we talked yesterday about abortions. Abortions are probably, especially completions, uh, though all abortions, um, uh, would be something that uh, would probably not be considered um, elective surgery in this case. 
Um, and so I want you to all think about that. Uh, be prepared. Here's my thought, is that we want to be proactive. We don't want the government to step in and tell us what is elective and what's not elective. We want our doctors to be ones making that decision. So start um, thinking about it. Start talking to your doctors about it. Start documenting what your decisions are on this. If you find patients that you want to do, I guess I, what I would suggest is create a temporary protocol as to what, what you would continue to do in your surgery center and what you would not uh, should this happen. Uh, you might want to create a form, for example, where the doctor signs off saying that this is a non-elective procedure that must be done uh, urgently in the center. I want to talk about the next one. Sure. Um, and William Prontes, Bill Prontes. No. Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> You can't cut this out of the... Uh, the, the no, nope. sorry, I'm, I'm know, looking at right. my spot. Where are we? Oh, I'm we? sorry. Um, limit uh, vendors. Uh, don't go up. Okay. <laughs> sorry. See. Okay, and they were... Okay, and you already talked about that. So they also suggest limiting vendors, sales reps, and visitors as much as possible. Because... Um, and we've heard from a center in New York that now has their entire staff in quarantine after two tested positive for COVID-19, and the center has had to temporarily close. The sales rep uh, was the source of infection, right. so you, you really want to think about that and be careful that way. And again, I, I, this is not on the script, guys, but uh, we, we had another center. Uh, uh, Judy, you might want to talk about this. Uh, we had a center up in uh, upstate New York um, who uh, unfortunately had an employee come in today with a fever. Um, uh, the health department did not recommend uh, isolation, but you might want to talk, uh, Judy, about what the response of the staff was. Well, it, the response is, was pretty much what I expected. Mm -hmm. Someone they know and they have coffee with every morning and, and sit around and, and, and shoot the breeze before the patients arrive. Then she tells her manager she has a sore throat, a dry cough, and a slight fever. They send her to the public health office, which is fine. That was exactly what they should have done. But now we have nine other nurses that have gone into full-blown, you know, panic mode. Mm -hmm. I was having coffee with her. I, you know, I, I walked out front with her. I, so now, you know, they're all, well, now I've had contact. Well, right. you've contact, but not with a, you know, an actual case. We don't mm -hmm. know she's an actual case because she hasn't been tested. Um, and I think the resource that we sent about that Jenna had created for us for contact to contact. Mm -hmm. Well, we can't even use that because she isn't a confirmed case. Mm -hmm. That's the problem, um, that there's not enough testing out there. So even though we're recommending for people to contact their um, Department of Health, which is the right thing to do, it's we're not always – they don't always have the resources to help as much as we wish that they could. But but the decision should be made. So this yes. uh, this is official right now is that at the, at the present time, if you have a patient or a staff member that comes in uh, that has a um, – uh, the symptoms. The symptoms, the... thank you. Mm -hmm. um, then uh, you immediately send that individual home. Do not send them to urgent care. Don't send them to the emergency room. You send them home, have them contact their health care provider. And then you, the ASC, contact um, the local health department and tell them, give them all the facts and let them make that determination. That's what we've done with two of our centers that have had uh, this type of a situation come up. So you don't, uh, the best guidance, the only guidance that we really are recommending at this point is to contact the local health department, which has a lot of information about what's going on in your community. 
moving on, uh, ASCA is still on. That's the ASC, uh, ASCA 2020 is still on at this time. We, uh, we have been in touch with uh, the ASC Association throughout the day. Uh, unfortunately, they're in meetings all day long, and we couldn't get anybody to come on to talk about this. Uh, but uh, they are they're extending their early bird registration rates for the time being. Uh, this will provide some additional time for you to decide to join us in Orlando in May without missing the savings currently being offered. Second, should the pandemic continue and we have to cancel or postpone the conference, you will be guaranteed a complete refund of your registration fees. Finally, our host hotel, the Orlando World Center Marriott, is making a comparable offer. If you book your room this month and ASCA later cancels the conference, the, ho the hotel will refund your full deposit. So that's, that's great. Um, uh, can, uh, uh, Sue, I, can you, that. I know you've been going yep. into William Prentice's. Uh, so the ASC Association did today mm -hmm. uh, um, issue a, a press release, and Sue will go into that. Yep, and I just wanted to mention, we're getting a lot of emails about the mayor and the governor, what they've said about canceling um, elective that, surgeries in New York City, so podcast? maybe take okay. a look, I'll take a look at this kind of thing. Um, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Every, everything's changing every minute. Yeah. Um, so William Prentice, as I started to say before, Bill Prentice, the CEO of the Ambulatory Surgery Center Association, um, has sent out some recommendations to the Department of Health and Human Services for how a ASCs can be helpful in the current uh, crisis situation. So some of his suggestions are uh, keeping facilities open for elective urgent surgeries, Assessing and optimizing patients' medical and social risk factors for planned surgeries and postponing cases where indicated, including uh, reassessing and reprioritizing all currently scheduled cases and postponing based on the current and projected COVID-19 cases in the facility and the surrounding area, and when doing so will not result in significant medical deterioration or material Im materially impact the patient's prognosis, morbidity, or treatment plan. Um, acknowledging that every patient encounter is unique and postponement decisions must represent a joint decision between the treating clinician and the patients. Uh, implement rigorous screening for patients and visitors prior to entering the facility. Maintain a safe environment for patients, for patients, employees, and visitors, including adherence to social distancing recommendations. Implement Enhanced cleaning as directed by the CDC guidelines, working within the capacity of the supply chain to ensure the hospitals have priority for necessary equipment and supplies. Collaborating with hospitals and health systems to coordinate care based on each community's individual needs and keeping facilities open for elective urgent uh, surgeries, which I said at the top. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and that's, let's see alternative I guess and we were just talking about how ASCs can serve as alternative settings that provide surgical care for those patients who would suffer from a delay um, and allow the local hospital partners to create the um, increased capacity that will be needed during these times uh, by the way we have about 52 people online right now um, I've got two questions that came in uh, Jenna I know you're trying to confirm but apparently Mary de Blasio let me just read this Mayor just put an executive order order in to postpone all elective surgeries for hospital Hospitals. and other medical facilities. Asked if we can confirm that. Thank you, Jackie. Uh, Jenny is trying to confirm that. Uh, Monica, 
Uh, also said, can you or somebody else tell us our ASC is still going? The mayor said one thing, mm -hmm. the governor said another. Yeah. Uh, are you all close after today, or how are you responding? So the, the, a quick answer, again, what we talked about earlier is that even if they do indicate that there will be no elective surgery, that does not mean a shutdown automatically for our organization, mm -hmm. because we do believe that some of the procedures that we mm -hmm. do are non-elective. Yep. Um, and that's something to really start thinking about now is trying to classify for yourself um, before they come forward and do it, right. what are some? What do you do that really um, is time sensitive that should not be put off? So, from a regulatory standpoint, you should be having a meeting of your governing body, uh, creating a protocol as to what cases you'll be taking right now. Put that protocol into writing. It's not a policy; it's a protocol, um, so that you can respond uh, when uh, when this comes out. And then. Um, again, we're getting some severe background noise. I don't know who it is, but please, if you can mute your mics, please. Uh, so that you'll have a clear protocol that you can give to your, your staff as to what cases you'd be allowing. Any other questions? I think, okay. John, yes. um, just to jump in here, um, I can confirm that de Blasio is live right now. Okay. Um, via YouTube and a few other places and Twitter. Okay. Um, so we're waiting for the updates from that. Okay. So okay. if you can monitor that, Alex, I'd appreciate it. Yep. Um, I did want to uh, kind of step in and um, just point out uh, some immediate issues, just some very, I mean, these are kind of obvious things, but obviously keep your staff stay safe. Um, staff will want to go home if they think they've been exposed. We talked about that before. Uh, you, so this is not a time to start cutting uh, corners on your infection control. Uh, you might not have the supplies, for example, masks, but OSHA rules are still in place. They're not going to waive the OSHA rules. And, of course, this is an infection control issue. So if you, uh, you try to cut corners and, uh, you know, start reusing non-reusable uh, items, that, that really is not advisable. And that we talked about in last night's uh, podcast where uh, Lori, who, who's not able to join us today, was very specific about being very careful in that area. This is a communicable disease. And the very items that you've been that some of you have been talking about reusing are the things that could help spread this. We're going to take a short break for a second here as we regroup, and we're going to come back in uh, less than 15 seconds for part two. Okay, Jenna is going to talk a little bit about uh, the registration and monitoring patients' issues regarding, uh, you know, the latest information on those areas. Go ahead, Jen. Okay, sorry. Um, so we are still recommending that you continue to screen patients during pre-op phone calls, asking questions such as, and again, there's no, um, there's no requirements as to what you're supposed to use. So just use um, best, best the best, yeah. yeah, but you can. Um, so do you or anyone in your household have um, symptoms or have you had symptoms in the past two weeks, such as fever, cough, or shortness of breath, um, or flu-like symptoms in general? Um, have you or anyone in your household traveled internationally or traveled on cruise ships within the past weeks? 
Um, have you had close or proximate contact with the suspected or laboratory confirmed uh, COVID-19 patient in the past two weeks? And um, for the definition of close contact, it would be within six feet of the person displaying symptoms of COVID-19 or someone who has been tested positive for COVID-19. And for proximate, that would be being in the same enclosed environment, such as a classroom office gathering, um, but more than six feet from the person. Um, and then it's um, your centers uh, who's going to have to establish the criteria as to which patients you would cancel. So you would want to cancel anyone who has obviously the symptoms of COVID-19. And I would also suggest um, if they have family members or people they're in close contact with who have the symptoms, um, people who have had close or proximate contact with a suspected or confirmed case of uh, COVID-19, um, anyone who is um, under precautionary or mandatory quarantine orders by the uh, Department of Health, um, anyone who's visited a level three or a, visited a country with a level three travel notice in the past two weeks. I would also, I mean, level two is the whole globe now. So that's up to you whether or not you want to, um, you want to exclude anyone who's traveled internationally at all. Um, it depends on how, um, uh, stringent you want to be. And also it's in the community now. So, um, I mean, someone coming back from Canada is just as likely probably from as someone in the United States to have um, the uh, have the illness. Um, the other thing, um, and, and we'll post a link to the. Are we? I think we have a link already up there for the uh, travelers, um, the list of countries uh, with the different levels. Correct. I, I mean, we yep. do. Yes. And then we'll also post. New York State put out new guidance this morning for our um, anyone from New York State regarding um, contacts of close or proximate contact um, of confirmed or suspected cases of COVID nineteen, and it kind of goes through if person A has. COVID-19 and person B had contact with that person and then person C had contact with person B, how do you handle those cases? I will reference you to read it rather than me try to explain it. Um, it also gives some guidelines as to whether people in the household have contact with people who have had contact with um, uh, COVID-19 and also for um, people who work with people who have had contact. Um, the other thing that's been a big topic of discussion is um, temperature screening uh, people upon arrival to the center. Um, we had a conference call with our um, consultants for the New York State Association this morning, and that was a big topic. Um, New York State had put out guidance for nursing homes that all staff should be um, evaluated before starting work. And if anyone has a temperature over a hundred, they should be sent home. Um, in surgery centers, um, th there's no clear guidance. That was also something that the CDC actually had recommended in um, areas where there's um, community spread or where, there, where there's a lot of cases. Um, and we'll put the CDC guidance up on online as well. Um, and 
there's a little bit of discussion about how would that work logistically. Um, I know there were a lot of questions because people arrive at work different times. How would you be stopping those people coming in? How would you, you know, have a staff person assigned to be taking the temperatures? What type of PPE would that person that's doing the screening wear? Um, and that's just something for each center to consider at this point that there's no um, requirements for it. It is one of the things though that um, in general they did in China to address the disease was um, upon entering buildings, people were temperature screened and if they had a temperature, they were sent to a fever clinic. And it was one of the ways that they did help contain the um, virus. So it is successful, but I know logistically it is hard for centers. Um, and then it was also suggested calling the Department of Health if you have anyone with a fever, um, just because it, you know, with widespread um, uh, transmission, you know, at this point, even without known um, exposure to someone with COVID-19, there is a likelihood or, you know, a possibility, I guess, at least, that the person might have contracted the illness. However, our experience so far um, has been from calling the Department of Health that um, they have stringent criteria on who gets tested and who doesn't, um, and the, they aren't testing everyone at this time. So um, hopefully we'll get more clear guidance as they ramp up their testing capabilities um, and they'll open up um, and, and hopefully they'll open up testing more widely because um, at this point it's not just people come, who have traveled internationally who are who, who are um, presenting with the disease. Mm -hmm. um, other infection control um, things to consider for your facility again none of these are requirements um, but they've just been suggested um, one thing to consider is having the visitors or the, the patient's ride wait outside um, to cut down how many people are gathered together in your waiting room and then just calling them when the patient's ready to be picked up. Um, or, you know, figuring out a way to rearrange your, um, your waiting room to spread people out that six feet or to encourage people to sit further apart from each other. Um, I do believe that, uh, and I'll have to post it, New York State just put up a new sign um, on their site about social distancing that you might want to consider hanging up in your waiting room. I just saw that today, so we'll, we'll put it up on our website. Um, and then another suggestion um, is to increase the frequency with which you clean um, your common areas or your waiting room. Um, you know, with the, with the disinfectant that um, is registered with the EPA that is known to um, kill the virus. And you can look that up on the CDC website. Um, and then the other thing to consider is spacing out your patients in, as much as possible in pre-op and post-op. I know one of my centers is closing down certain bays so that their patients are spread out. So if that's something that you're able to do, um, that's just something to consider. I think that was most of my most of my things for today. Thanks, Jenna. Uh, a couple of reminders here. Just uh, I want to remind everybody to uh, for for more information, visit the acpodcast.com website and follow the links on the front page there. 
um, the, the the links will help give you a lot of the information. I do have to warn you, we have not updated the um, that uh, that one page since Thursday. I apologize about that. We are a little overwhelmed here. Uh, I will try to do that. Jen and I and Alex will try to do that tonight. Uh, also, if you want to get updates as when we go live, or you want updates on. Um, what uh, uh, when we have a new episode available, we are going to be recording this. Ep- we are recording this episode. We'll put it up shortly after uh, we get off the air here. Um, um, then, uh, if you hit the subscribe button on the, your podcast app, you'll you'll get updates immediately. Uh, and also, please connect with me on LinkedIn. I do post an awful lot on LinkedIn, uh, and that is uh, John Gailey. That's spelled G O E H L E. Just search me for me and ask for a uh, uh, to connect with me. I, I connect with everybody. I don't turn anybody down. Alex, do you want to... Oh, I'm sorry. We have a couple questions here. We do. Um, So before we get to Alex, uh, Jeremy uh, sent in the question, what if a patient comes from an area that is considered high risk? Does that... Is that considered to be direct contact? I guess I would probably say no unless they're... I don't know. Are we talking about like the person who had contact so I, I believe someone the, who yeah, had it so the question had, no so the the patient just merely came from an area that's considered a high risk such as a, a, a level three so if this is a patient uh, you highly recommend that they uh, reschedule their case for uh, two weeks and, and that's an important point you should be screening all of your patients before they come uh, thank you Jeremy um, uh, before they come in so uh, if they have no other symptoms and correct me if I'm wrong everybody uh, if they have no other symptoms and there's merely a level three con- or a contact with a level three country, mm-hmm. um, they should not be coming in. Uh, if okay, and, and I guess the other question is if they did come in. Um, I think that's our question here. If they did come in, what would you do? I would send them home, and unless they had any other uh, uh, and direct them to contact the Department of. Um, I know in New York State, at least those people are supposed to be under. Um, under quarantine orders. Um, now, New York State is kind of funny because they haven't updated their um, guidance since they um, changed which countries are under travel bans. So it's a little unclear at this point. Um, but definitely anyone from China, um, Iran, Italy, or South Korea um, needs to be quarantined for two weeks from when they got home. Japan was under a two when the New York, when New York state put out their guidance. And so they're still on the list. However, CDC has removed them from a level two. Um, but now all of Europe mostly is a level three. So CDC recommends that anyone who's coming back from any of the level three countries self quarantine for two weeks. Um, and Jeremy now, did you say you have yes, contact with one of those people, um, and it's minimal. I would refer to um, guidance. I, contact your local minimal, health. Yeah. I would monitor. I would self monitor at this right. point. I don't see no. a need to. I mean, certainly you don't need to shut down. You just send the patient home. Contact the local health department and let them uh, give you guidance. And, uh, and, and CDC a, has some good guidance about. Um, uh, for healthcare professionals, in terms of um, if they have contact with a known or suspected person with COVID nineteen, depending on the level of 
um, PPE they were wearing at the time and how much contact they had with the patient. They have different levels of um, what that employee should do. And if it's not already up on the website, we can definitely post it. Alex, uh, go ahead with the answer to Mona's question. Mona, Mona asked, our county is doing a shelter-in-place mm -hmm. order at 3 o'clock p.m. today. How do we proceed? And I think you just researched that, Alex. Yeah, it, it appears that that's probably in uh, California. It looks like there are six Bay Area counties that are announcing a shelter-in-place order. Okay. Um, Which would appear I to indicate that you uh, should uh, no longer be doing procedures in the surgery center unless otherwise... Uh, because uh, your your employees are basically told to stay home, your patients are told to stay home. So they shut down quickly and send everybody home so they can shelter in place. Not right. What time was it at three o'clock? They said today. Yeah. Now there are certain items or certain businesses staying open, um, such as grocery stores, food banks, pharmacies, restaurants for takeout food, vet services, etc. You know, there's there's a number of items. Um, I'm looking at San Francisco Chronicle right now, and okay. they don't say anything about healthcare, which is uh, kind of surprising, quite frankly. So I'm still yeah. digging. <laughs> and uh, Beth LaBoyer, if you're on, I don't see you on, but if uh, you are on or if you can come on, if you have any better guidance, please call in and we, we'll take care of that. Uh, Alex, uh, do you want to start talking? Uh, wait, let me just make sure we got all the questions. We did. Oh, uh, go Sue. Oh, yes. I was looking to see if they had anything else about the sheltering in place. But. Okay. Um, uh, so the ASC Association um, has posted on their website some links or some information links. Uh, we'll we'll try to cross post that too. Uh, that might provide you a lot of good information also. At least that's the email I just got from uh, Beth Lavoyer. Alex, go ahead. Uh, so uh, let's talk about the 1135 waiver. Uh, first of all, Alex, describe what it is for our our poor listeners. Absolutely. So an 1135 waiver is, um, it basically it takes two steps first to activate the ability um, for an 1135 waiver to be put in place. Uh, the first is that the president um, needs to declare a national emergency, which of course he has. Um, and then the uh, secretary of human of the department of health and human services um, needs to declare a public health emergency under Section uh, 319 of the Public Health Service Act. Um, and that enables the secretary to take certain actions um, in addition to her regular authorities, uh, which then also allow her to um, initiate um, CMS, basically, to uh, issue 1135 waivers. Um, so going off of that, and, and that has also happened. Um, so we are in a place where 1135 waivers are beginning to be issued. Um, I believe everyone, well, at least in New York, um, should have seen from uh, John Van Volkenberg and our consultants there um, this morning sent out a PDF, and I'm sure we'll, we'll post that on the podcast page, of the current waivers and um, potential future waivers that will be issued. Um, now, an 1135 waiver um, comes down from, is issued by CMS, um, but in order for one to be initiated, um, it, it gets initiated by the states or by a territory. 
Um, so that might be, you know, local government. Um, so I, I guess the point so being is that we don't initiate an 1135, the uh, the government entity does. <coughs> now, we can talk to our local hospitals and say, hey, by the way, and the governmental entity, hey, we're here and we're ready to uh, to take on emergency situations or do something in the emergency, but we do not uh, initiate it ourselves. The, uh, the, en- the government entity has to initiate the 1135 waiver. Exactly. The idea being here that the government entity has identified a need um, that they want your facility to fill. Um, and then basically they will request a waiver for you specifically or for multiple facilities. And um, so that way you are able to fulfill that need. Um, and we will be uh, posting, we do have an 1135 uh, policy. I know that we're going to try to polish it, polish it up because, quite frankly, we never thought we'd ever have to use one. Um, so we're going to polish that up, and we'll, uh, we will post it within the next uh, couple of days, hopefully, on the website. Uh, more quickly if it becomes absolutely urgent. Absolutely. And something quick to note, um, the, so, so the 1135 is a, it comes from the Social Security Act. It's one of the sections there. Um, and it does not provide immunity from liability. So that's important to note because a number of the items that um, can get waived um, have to do with healthcare professionals that may be coming in and um, operating on a license from a different state within your surgery center or you know, in a hospital or otherwise. Um, so let's look at, let's talk about what waivers are currently in place. Um, So we have sorry sorry here this is real time (laughs) thank you for all your patience here (laughs) Beth LeBoyer just had an announcement can you read it Uh, you might want to refresh We have uh, Beth LeBoyer doing some research in California right now for us. Okay, perfect. Um, So the current waivers that we have um, involve provider locations. um, And these are specifically the ones that might um, have to do with ASCs. Um, So provider locations. So they're temporarily waiving requirements that out-of-state providers be licensed in the state where they are providing services. Uh, when they are licensed in another state. So, for instance, you know, on a border, you might be able to provide services to, um, you know, somebody from New Jersey, even though you're in New York State. Um, and vice versa. Provider and, and vice versa, exactly. Um, provider enrollment. Um, so they're waiving um, certain application fees, criminal background checks, and site visits um, for screening of either new enrollees or um, revalidation. They are also allowing for extensions to file appeals um, for fees for service. And the current, those are the current waivers that uh, might be applied to ASCs. Possible future waivers include waive prior authorization requirements in fee-for-service programs, uh, permits to um, 
permitting providers located out of state territory to provide. Well, that's the correct one. Um, looks like they put that on both lists. Temporarily suspend um, enrollment and revalidation requirements. Again, that one is currently active. And then, um, and then basically states and territories um, are encouraged to assess their needs and request any available um, flexibilities to to further implement, um, you know, the federal government's plan. So those are the current and possible waivers, um, and we do have we do have a few resources that we'll provide, um, including links to a 11:35 waiver toolkit to kind of show you what um, the states would be looking at, um, but. For instance, the state needs to provide CMS with the provider name and type, the full address, a contact person at the site, a brief summary of the need, um, the type of relief or regulation to be waived, and the scope and impact of the issue. So, you know, how widespread is it? Um, and they would have to list out the provider's names um, that this waiver would apply to. So this isn't a blanket thing. It's something that is in writing. It's something that is initiated by the state or other governmental entity, but most likely the state in this situation. Um, exactly. I, the The ones that I mentioned are blanket waivers. Got it. Um, but any that will be applied for through states are not. So I think a, a takeaway from this is that we should be prepared uh, for the possibility that uh, organization might be called upon to assist um, in uh, in whatever level necessary. Uh, we're going to talk about it. For example, in New York State, we've identified a need for about 5,000 beds in the metropolitan New York City uh, area alone. Uh, and th that's beyond the, cap uh, the capacity that currently exists in the city. So they're going to be calling on nursing homes. They're going to be calling on uh, other places that might be able to do it. A surgery center might be uh, one of those uh, organizations that might be called upon to provide um, uh, like uh, intensive care unit uh, level uh, care. Um, now that would mean that they could use your staff. They could bring their staff in, you know, or staff in from a hospital or from another organization uh, and, uh, and, and we also know that uh, resources might be available and might be brought in, uh, even using the Army Corps of Engineers, for example, if they needed to uh, make uh, quick modifications. We do know that the governor is called upon, uh, again, in New York, I'm sorry, we, uh, but but I, I think this is going to happen in other areas uh, also, is that uh, the, the governor in New York has called upon the federal government to assist in uh, building more hospital capacity. I'm assuming it's temporary. Uh, but that is uh, certainly a prerogative of uh, a governor to uh, to ask the the um, um, the army to to provide assistance in building whatever capacity needs to be there. I think uh, you know before that happens, though, we need to make it very clear that we have the ability, we have uh, facilities that uh, can act as an intensive care unit, uh, in, in my opinion, um, uh, to be able to help out here. So we'll keep an eye on this. Uh, I know ASCA is trying to get that message out there. Uh, we'll do the same thing at the state level. And if you have questions, there is an email address, 1135waiver at cms.hhs.gov. Alex, do you have anything else? Did we? Alex, are you there? That's it. Yep, I'm here. Still trying to listen to 
the mayor. Okay. Make sure that he's not actually saying anything useful. Which he, by the way, he hasn't given any guidance yet. Okay. Okay. Sue's just going to talk quickly about the, uh, I know we're going to try to hold off some of the state-specific stuff, but again, I think some of the stuff could be probably going to be coming become national and so go ahead sue with california thank you so beth labor just um sent some information on the california shelter in place um i'll just quickly read through it as john said it it could i'm sure it may be happening other places um so the alameda county health officer um joined six other bay area public health jurisdictions to issue an order for alameda county residents to shelter in place to slow the spread of the uh of covid19 and serve critical health care capacity across the region. Um, Alameda County joined several other, well, Contra Costa, Marin, San Francisco, San Mateo, and Santa Clara counties with the the city of Berkeley on a legal order directing their respective residents to shelter at home for three weeks beginning March 17th. The order limits activity, travel, and business functions to only the most essential needs. The guidance comes after substantial input from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and best practices from other health officials around the world. And then they just go on to talk about um, the the death rate there and, you know, the importance of social distancing. And then it says, you already defines essential activities as necessary for the health and safety of individuals and their families. Essential businesses allowed to operate during the recommended action include health care operations, um, businesses that provide food, shelter, and social services. Um, some other things are mentioned. And then they do say for a full list, please see Section 10 of the order, which um, this information is on the CDC's website. But when I look into it, it does look like health care um, is still allowed to be open. So I'm Right. I, sure. I guess the, the news is that your patients are going to be sheltered mm-hmm. in, spe- in, yes. in place. Yes, uh, You're allowed to be open, and mm-hmm. I would assume that this would mean that your staff is able to come in because they're essential yeah. uh, But how people. many of them will you need? How many of them will you, you need? Know. And yeah. also, uh, what what procedures are you going are, are going to be required or going no. to be uh, urgent? Go and ahead. from Judy, she said Boston also mandated a 14-day shelter in place. So we said it looks Boston. like it's, okay. yeah. So we're going to start to see this. We'll try to keep up to date with this. I'm afraid we're going to have to go daily podcasts on this, at least in in the near term. Um, Any other input from anybody? I know uh, Jenna and Alex, you're uh, watching de Blasio's speech. Nothing yet, I I hear, um, on that. So let's move on. Okay. No other questions at this point? No. Okay. Um, So we have been considering, Zach, you're going to be on in a few seconds here, just a fair warning. We've been considering some of the consequences, the financial consequences to our organizations, assuming that we do have to shut down. Now, again, we're going to try, you know, to find options to try to stay open. But even if we um, do, um, uh, I I think what's going to happen is we're we're going to suffer some financial consequences from this, and we need to be able to consider some of the financial uh, options that we might have available to us. So I had uh, Zach, who is uh, one of our our, uh, consultants here who uh, works in the financial area, do some research today of availability. And Zach, just kind of quickly go through this. We will post uh, the information that he has uh, on our website to to assist you in, uh, in, in accessing these resources. Go, Zach. Sure thing. So... Uh, what I'd like to talk about is, again, some of the economic impacts that the COVID-19 has been having on small businesses specifically. Um, a lot of our ASCs are considered small businesses. So in general, as we've noticed, um, the economy is being impacted. There have been 
several major market fluctuations. And of course, most importantly, the specific government mandates in terms of what types of cases can still be performed in ASCs or just in general in healthcare centers. Um, that's been a major topic of discussion lately. Mm-hmm. Um, so all these things can impact the number of cases that ASCs may be able to perform. Um, we'd like to stress that there are definitely still options and resources available for small businesses in general. And a major uh, resource that I've been looking into comes directly from the United States Small Business Administration, um, their website being just broadly sba.gov. And I've been looking at an article called Guidance for Businesses and Employers to Plan and Respond for Coronavirus Disease 2019. And I believe we'll be posting the link to that specific site later on. Correct. Um, so Correct. One, of their, one of their programs is called the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program, where the SBA will work directly with state governors to provide targeted low-interest loans to small businesses and nonprofits uh, that have been severely impacted by coronavirus. Um, more broadly, some common issues that have been impacting small businesses that small businesses may encounter are workforce capacity, inventory and supply chain shortfalls, facility remediation, cleanup costs, insurance coverage issues, changing market demand, and most importantly, access to capital. So um, I'd like to focus on incidents, constrain a small business's financial capacity to make payroll, maintain inventory, and respond to market fluctuations, um, both sudden drops and surges in demand. Businesses mm-hmm. should prepare by exploring and testing their capital access options so they have, so they know what they have and Not, when they uh, need it. Right. To that end, we've actually already talked to a couple of people who are talking to their banks right now, asking about the availability of uh, you know temporary loans in order to meet payroll needs or uh, whatever you might need. You might, you know, for example, uh, sorry to interrupt there, Zach, but um, the, you know, you might find yourself uh, needing capital in order to be able to uh, offer the additional services that might happen under an 1135 waiver, uh, or, you know, of course, just be able to make payroll. Go ahead. Sure. So uh, the last point I wanted to make is, so the SBA also uh, works with a number of local partners to counsel, mentor, and train small businesses. Um, they have the SBA has 68 district offices as well as support provided by its partners, such as SCORE offices, women's business centers, small business development centers, and business outreach centers. Um, when faced with a business need, use the SBA's local assistance directory to locate the nearest office near you, which is on that same page I mentioned at the beginning. Um, maybe we'll also be able to post that direct link. Sure. So, Okay, thanks. Uh, Judy, you're up next. Uh, So one of the other areas that we um, have been looking into is what happens, uh, and we even have to talk about this, but what happens if you're going to have to lay off some of your employees? I mean, we have to face the reality here um, that, uh, you know, we might not be able to keep all of our people employed during this time frame. And mm-hmm. if our volume drops, uh, we, you know, there might be a need to even temporarily lay off your part-time or your uh, per diem employees in order to let them potentially access uh, unemployment. So uh, Judy's been looking into the unemployment uh, situation just to kind of, we don't all know uh, what's uh, how unemployment works. Uh, so uh, Judy uh, just has some quick notes on that. Go, Judy. Okay, thanks. Um, I know this is um, a, a God forbid scenario, you know, um, 
a last a last ditch effort kind of thing, but just to make sure that your employees understand that if you're carrying their health insurance coverage, um, it is possible that you can gen you generally are able to extend it between 10 and 90 days after your layoff notice or your termination notice. Um, if you need to have, if you have been participating in an employer's group health insurance plan for at least three months, so if it's somebody that was brand new, it may not um, apply to them. But if it's someone you've had on the books for longer than three months, they have this ability. Um, the Consolidated Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act, known as COBRA, um, is a federal law that allows employees to continue that um, employer-provided health insurance after they've been laid off, or even if they were fired for cause, um, as long as it's what they consider to have been a qualified event. Um, and if you look at what they list as a qualified event is if the employer is terminated, um, the employment relationship for reasons other than gross misconduct, for example, if an employee is laid off because of mass downsizing, um, if the employee quits their job, or if the employee's hours are reduced below the threshold to receive benefits under the employer's plan. So like if you offer your plan for anybody over 35 hours, and now because things have changed, you're bringing everybody down to 20, um, they're still able to use that employer-based insurance. Um, and again, it's going to be different each each um, employer's policy, how it's written, gives them a different time frame, whether it's between between 10 and 90 days is really a pretty big, big window there. So you're going to have to look to see how much, how long you've offered your employees and then make it clear to them that these are the steps they can take to keep that same um, coverage after they've separated from you. Does that Right. I, and then we just want to, uh, we, we kind of skipped over the whole unemployment issue. Uh, as I understand it, at the federal level, uh, they have waived the two-week uh, waiting period for unemployment, correct? They have. Yes. Oh, on a, you know, a, a disconcerting note, those areas that have gone on shelter in place, for instance, Boston, and that's only just because I have a personal interest there. Boston closed mm -hmm. their, today, closed their unemployment offices. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh. So there was nowhere to go to even begin this process other than online. And I know a good okay. percentage, 80% of the world could do it online. Mm -hmm. But for those that can't, that's, a, that's an issue. That's, that's a hardship. Um, and I don't know how they're going to work through that. Um, and I just heard that today. Um, okay. But yes, they have extended that where you need to wait a week before you can even apply for it. And then there's a week you have to wait before you get your first one. Those both have been waived on the federal, regardless of state level. Um, so and, that right. And we do have some state-specific information, at least for the major states uh, that, that tend to follow our podcast and where we have clients. Uh, and we'll post that on the website, too. Just the stuff that you gave me, Judy. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. <laughs> Uh, Sue, uh, do you have anything else, Judy? No, that's all I've got right now. Okay. Uh, Sue, why don't you just finish up here the, the section with, um, um, okay. I just had a, had a, uh, quick comment that, um, I found some guidance on workplace safety concerning COVID-19 from OSHA and they address the different levels of risk. So, you know, everything from very low risk to above exposure in some workplaces to, you know, the healthcare facilities. So it's a large document, but if you look through, you should be able to find um, the healthcare type things. It's um, guidance on preparing workplaces for COVID-19 from OSHA. And that's at um, the OSHA site at www.osha.gov. 
and again, we'll we'll post these things as soon as we can after the podcast so that mm-hmm. you'll have these resources available for for you. Does anybody have any questions? Please text them in, or if you uh, wish to come on, we can uh, let you on. Uh, we'll keep monitoring that. Any other comments from my peanut gallery here? <laughs> okay. Let's uh, take, okay, so I think that uh, finishes up uh, this section. Uh, we are going to uh, take a short break and come back and talk specifically about New York. We know quite a bit of the, the people on are from New York. Uh, we're going to probably try to do California um, it, tomorrow or uh, shortly thereafter. Um, so today we're going to do a section in the third part here uh, for California. Um, Sue, before we do that, do you want to mention those um, things that have been canceled? We normally yeah. at the end of our podcast talk about... Um, yeah, let me just quickly look through. So the um, this year's National Advocacy Day was canceled um, with, you know, ASCA's National Advocacy Day. Iowa Association of ASC's 12th Annual Education Conference has been canceled. Did you mention... Ask us how they're extending. Yeah, I did. And yeah, okay, ASCA, is still, uh, ASCA is still on uh, at this point, and they are uh, encouraging people to sign up, and they will refund if you didn't get that earlier in the podcast. And that's all we have at this point in terms of cancellation. Oh, and that, yes. No, that's right. Everything else is still it's, on that we've announced. Okay. Um, but okay. stay tuned because I have a feeling. Right. I have no other questions. Are you all set? Yep. Okay, so we're going to take a short break here. We're going to reset, and uh, we'll come back with some New York State-specific stuff. Thanks for your patience. are back. Um, just before I went off, we did a question, get a question from Ohio. Um, I, unfortunately, I think Jen is not on. Uh, so uh, the rest of us will have to try to vamp. Hang on one second here. Um, this is from Ohio. We have a staff member whose son is a nursing student and had exposure. So now he is in quarantine for 14 days at her house. Does our staff member have to quarantine as well then? Um, so it sounds like in this case they've had a direct exposure to a patient. I, w- I would say they have to quarantine. Mm-hmm. Any objections? Okay. No, I think that makes We're waiting sense. for uh, John Van Balkenberg to call in. He's the president of the state association. When he calls in, um, we'll uh, put him on. And we did have a question. I know you answered it, but have we said yet to everybody out there where to, that it's the ASCpodcast.com is where when we say we're right. going to link – Things that that's right. where we're right on the cover page. About. There's a link to, in big bold letters as to uh, where we're going to be posting a lot. Again, we mm-hmm. have not updated since 
uh, Thursday of last week, which mm-hmm. in today's day and age is like years ago. Uh, I'll try to uh, update things. You'll probably see them updated in real time. I'm not going to wait. I'll just keep uh, uploading things. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry. I don't know that we have John on board, but let me just talk a little bit about what's going on uh, in New York State. And so we did John, have... Yes, go ahead. Um, it looked like he's got a urgent delay. Okay. Um, he might have had something happen at his center. I don't know. Okay, I understand. Uh, uh, actually, let's start. Let's just lead off with the big news. Uh, Alex, do you have anything from um, Mayor DeVazio's uh, no, they were honestly. It was mostly uh, reporters trying to um, get him to incriminate himself because he went to a, a gym this morning, oh, and right. uh, <laughs> yeah. but apparently the gym was shut down. But okay, but unfortunately, it's wasting <laughs> um, our time and trying. Go ahead, uh, Sue. We have a question. Yeah. Uh, we Sue. have a. Um, it's an email question, but I sure. guess we could. Cover it and then um, we have somebody asking, do we need to space the patients in the waiting area at our center? Any suggestions on how to manage the 50 people only ruling in the facility? Good question. So uh, we did talk about this earlier, but um, yes, you, you want to space people at least three feet apart. Do whatever you can in your organization. We have one center that has a very un- inconvenient uh, setup and they're going to be um, they're going to be moving the furniture around in order to accommodate this. I think another possibility is, uh, I mean, hopefully it's going to get warmer, mm-hmm. but, you know, send people outside yep. uh, and tell them that's for your own safety, you know, please wait outside. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe that way you can only let the patients inside that are coming yeah. in. Um, and I like the suggestion that somebody had, and I don't know, I'm, I apologize if you already said something, but if you, if it's possible in your center and, and your volume is dropping, start taping off or moving, right. you know, taping off, or, you know, Two seats in front and between each third seat, mm. or you know what anything you can do to get closer to that six feet apart, um, or just you know removing some chairs and separating everything out just to to make it easier. Right. So we did, uh, Alex. Did uh, anything? So nothing else, right, Alex? Okay. Awesome. No. Um. Sorry. Um. I did find on the New York City website that there is a new. Um, Infection control recommendation uh, PDF for outpatient facilities. Okay. Um, so we should probably put that up. Um, I did just email that to you so you can look at it too. Um, okay. It it gives specific um, instructions as far as what um, PPE should be worn in each area of the facility um, by patients, healthcare workers, and non-clinical staff. Okay, good. Uh, just for my staff here, uh, let's go into a Zoom. Uh, uh, you can get some dinner, and then uh, we'll go on to a Zoom afterwards, and we'll update in real time on the website. I think that's probably the most efficient way to do it. Uh, let's just go over some of the New York State stuff. Uh, if you were not on, there was a, 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 a conference call this morning with our uh, New York State Association uh, consultants. I'm just going to quickly go through some of the notes from that conversation. The hospitalizations are up today 17% over the past. We have 950 confirmed cases. We are in a state of emergency. Uh, they're recommending statewide um, to decrease movement and density. Hang on, John, I'm letting you in. Uh, at the present time, we only have 3,000 ICU beds in the city of New York, and they are expecting, if I, if I remember right, they're expecting to need another 5,000 beds um, 
to to meet the, the expected demand, and that's that shortfall is uh, is one of the big concerns that we have right now is where they're going to get that capacity from. Um, so they're working very quickly to try to find capacity. As I mentioned before, the governor has actually asked the federal government to uh, to bring the Army um, Corps of Engineers in to, as they say, build more hospitals. I think what they mean is to retrofit exist existing facilities to be able to handle, um, uh, what do you call it, to intensive care units, right? Um, numbers upstate are much lower than they are uh, in the rest of the state, but they are increasing. Nursing homes are the ones that are most impacted at that this time because they're dealing with the most uh, uh, vulnerable population. Um, th there was this note about all healthcare professionals have to wear masks and reuse. We do have some uh, extreme disagreements about this, so I, I, I don't know. Uh, that was advice that they gave, but uh, we in the surgery center industry uh, do not agree with that. Uh, there is a link on the DOH website uh, and an email to get supplies. So uh, uh, the, uh, Lisa did indicate that there are uh, telephone numbers you can call to get uh, additional masks. Uh, we had anecdotal notes that some people were able to do that, and then uh, later on in that uh, conference call, there was an indication that uh, that was not working. Um, they were asked, I uh, forget about that. Um, so uh, we, we do believe that uh, amateur surgery centers that are affiliated with uh, hospitals, and uh, we have two clients that have that type of relationship right now. We think they will be the first ones that will probably be asked to uh, uh, give their beds up uh, for either intensive care or to take on uh, surgical cases that would normally stay in the center that are uh, urgent. Uh, DOH has to ask to do this, or I should say the government has to ask to do this, as we talked about in the 1135 waiver earlier. Do you have a feeling for how that would happen if they had to give up their beds? Would it be just simply their the use of their building, would they be expected to provide staff? How That's a really good question, and I don't know that we have an answer to okay. that. I think um, I, in this situation, as Alex talked about earlier, as to what the steps are for the 1135 waiver, again, it's the government that, that institutes this. Mm -hmm. But I'm assuming that, you know, the hospitals are going to have a lot of uh, input into that request, mm -hmm. uh, and it'll be a negotiation. So whereas that's an official uh, edict that comes down from the government, as you're developing that, you're going to have a conversation going on. I would, uh, I would would assume, well, I would encourage uh, organizations to use the staff of the surgery center since you're much more familiar with what you have in that facility. Uh, you are going to probably have to bring equipment in from outside. Mm -hmm. uh, and but specialized people if you're doing ICU type exactly. things. But, uh, but you're going to have to have staff that are aware of your emergency procedures or, you know, where mm -hmm. everything is, et cetera. Uh, I, we no, need to reemphasize that governor, and the governor is not canceling elective surgery at this point, though he is leaving that option open. Go ahead, Alex. Or John. Or John, yeah. sorry. sorry. Yeah, sorry, that was, that was me. That was, um, so we have had centers um, have hospitals transfer patients to them in terms of, or not transfer, but um, push procedures to them that are within their current scope and that they would not need the 1135 waiver for that would just be part of it. Okay. as long as the doctors that are already credentialed are able to do that exactly. let's make it clear exactly. is that the, yep. they have not waived the need for uh, credentialing just in the same way. Now, we all know that we can expedite credentialing if uh, if need be, and if you need advice on how to do that, please contact me at 585-729-8781. I'd be glad to help you out on that. Um, but at the present time, you cannot, uh, you can, you, you cannot um, uh, minimize your, um, your, your standards here uh, when it comes to credentialing, especially infection control. Uh, 
Sorry. Uh, most of the hospitals have closed for all visitors. And again, I think Jenna mentioned before, try to minimize who comes with a patient, limit it to one person. If that person uh, can stay out in their car, I don't think that's a bad idea, you know, until you absolutely need them to try to minimize that. Uh, drive-in testing, uh, drive-through testing has begun in New York City. I believe it has also begun upstate in some areas. Uh, as of last week, there is a limit on gathering. No more than 50 are allowed to gather. Or rec I, I, is that a mandate? Does anybody know? Is that I like law? believe it. Yeah, I believe it so. Is. Yeah, I, I believe. Thank you, John. Uh, if you can work from home, please do so, but it's not mandatory at this point, uh, at least in New York State now. As we do know, uh, California has a shelter in place in uh, a couple of, a number of counties. Um, and what was the other state? Uh, Boston, Boston uh, did that also. Yeah. So keep an eye out for that. I, I, that's, that. I didn't even think about that being a possibility. Mm -hmm. um, but it depends where you work, because there are definitely places that they still right. will have open. Uh, there were a lot of questions during that uh, conference call about face masks. Um, and again, I think there was a lot of misinformation given there about the ability to reuse face masks. I really don't recommend that, and I think Lori would say the same thing. Uh, again, you're dealing with people that are, are uh, it, it, this is how, uh, how that disease gets, uh, uh, or the virus gets spread. Uh, very important point. Make sure you do a really good documentation of all the expenditures that you're going through during this time, the extra expenses that are related to uh, um, everything here. Uh, document it separately. Keep uh, uh, receipts and emails for the future. Uh, no guarantee that you might get reimbursed for this, but uh, as time goes on and as, uh, as Zach talked about earlier, you know, from a financial standpoint, we might be able to uh, request special grants. We might be able to, t to uh, get loans. We might be able to access some uh, resources. Um, if we can prove that we uh, we have suffered a hardship, uh, John, I have John Van Valkenburg on the line. John was also part of that. John is the president of the New York State Association of Amatory Surgery Centers. He's also the administrator at uh, Upstate Orthopedic uh, Amatory Surgery Center. Welcome, John. And can you talk a little bit about uh, uh, what's been going on with you? I know you've uh, you've had a very busy day, also. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thanks, John. Yeah, I, as as most people are are probably or I'm sure are aware, you know, it's it's there's been a lot of a lot of wild things going on. I've been, um, you know, I've, between today, Friday, Thursday, um, on multiple conference calls throughout the day. Um, you know, for those of you in New York that are members, um, I know a lot of you have participated on the call that John referenced earlier, which is our. Um, uh, Capital Health Consulting, who is our uh, legislative advocacy firm for the state association, uh, has been having daily calls. I know there's another one scheduled for, for tomorrow at, at 11 a.m., so I, I know I sent that out uh, to members, but that's that's been helpful. Um, so I've been on those calls. You know, they, as John mentioned a little while ago, you know, the issue is in, in, in what, what I'm, I'm finding, and I'm sure most of, of everybody's finding most frustrating is is just is is the confusion and just kind of the 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 the, the lack of direction I, I know that some people we've had members uh emailing you know really for the past week to have been emailing me looking for some guidance you know there you, you hear something you know from the mayor in new york you hear something else from the governor and and there's there's misinformation going on i know there's been a lot of questions and i john you referenced it earlier about the uh, you know, the whole elective, elective surgery, um, ban or 
potential of an elective surgery ban. I know there's some other states that have have initiated those types of uh, directives from uh, from the State Department of Health or from the governor's office of, of those states. And and I know that there's some um, some facilities that have already opted to do that here based on guidance that came from you know, the American College of Sur Surgeons or, uh, you know, the GI agencies that John referenced earlier. Um, I, I did actually, uh, I've been trying to maintain contact with uh, with our members and other state um, facilities to find out what's going on locally for them, what's going on within their facilities. I did, um, I did get some feedback um, this morning to a request I sent out about the status. I'm, I'm trying to get... Um, you know, to get uh, an idea of of how our facilities currently being affected with regards to their status and what decisions have been being made. And I did get a response from about a dozen or so of our members. Um, of those, there is um, four facilities that have contacted me today and confirmed to me that they are in fact closed. Um, most of that, you know, John, one where of them, are they located? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, great, great question. So uh, one of them is because of an exposure that's in the capital area. Right. Um, the other ones have done it just out in a, an abundance of caution. They are in Long Island and in the, in the New York City area, so the downstate area. And they've made, I believe, most of them made the decisions today, some of them over the weekend, but they, they made the decision to close Um most of some of them uh, for the remainder of this week, um, others just for two weeks. They've, they've made the decision right now. Um, it, there's also been a number of uh, six facilities. Uh, those are in Rochester and also downstate that have not closed, but they have enacted their own um, facility um, elective surgery um, postponement. I guess so. And again, what what's so important there is is the definition, and and that's somewhat inconsistent too. So um, there's some GI centers that I communicated with, a couple that have made the decision um, to uh, to discontinue or to, you know, temporarily halt any screening procedures. And that's kind of what they deemed as, you know, but any procedures that they have scheduled where there's indications for an endoscopy, they're keeping those on. Um, there's some other facilities that I talked to that made a decision. They um, made a determination of patients over the next two weeks that they considered high risk. Um, based on, you know, either the patient's medical condition or age, high risk for not just contracting the virus, but from um, contracting the virus and having you know, significant complications associated with that. And these facilities have, and again, it's a facility decision that was made to um, to cancel or postpone those cases um, where the patient is what they determined to be a high risk. So, you know, what's, what's kind of been happening, it, you know, everybody's kind of taking an, an individual approach to it. And again, because there's, you know, everybody's doing their own, their own risk assessments and really trying to do, uh, do assessments on the fly here, which I, I mean, is, uh, because the situation is, is unprecedented. That's, uh, that's, that's really all, all that, not, that's not all that surprising. It's, it's difficult to, uh, it's difficult to, uh, you know, kind of plan for a situation like this because it is, uh, it, it, to be honest with you, um, 
you know, if, if you even even a week ago, I, I think, and, and probably most most of you listening and 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 the other uh, the other people on the on the podcast would probably agree. I, I wouldn't even have thought a week ago that we would be where we are now. I, I right. would have almost thought it not possible, you know, in in personally, you know, I've gone from, you know, on Friday you know, thinking that maybe uh, a closure of, of my facility, a temporary closure of my facility was, you know, unli- an unlikely remote possibility to now today, you know, really trying to feel like um, we need to to really be preparing for a, right. a closure, either. Not a possibility that, of if, And, and I don't want to scare yeah. everybody, but just because it's yeah. either, you know, we today they announced the first two cases in Onondaga County. And, you know, we're seeing, I'm seeing what's happening in other states and, and action being taken. I know uh, that ASCA has, is urging at the federal level, you know, them to, they're not to be a mandate to close surgery centers right. because they, they made a great point that surgery centers are an asset in these situations, that there are, you know, procedures that need to be done and that facilities can um, help unload or help relieve some of the pressure on the hospitals where if the surgery centers were closed, s- surgeries that had to be done would be getting done there. So um, I think we're, you know, we're looking to try and deliver a similar message um, on the state level um, and, and echo that a little bit, because I think that's a good point. But, you know, I've had a lot of, you know, obviously, um uh, you know, conversations with other facilities and, and, and other leaders in the industry, but also you know, at the same time, I have my own facility here that's uh, that's dealing with it as a crisis too. So, meeting with my staff, meeting with the leadership of my facility to 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 come up um, with a plan, and 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 it's 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 been tough because, you know, I think that the thing that we uh, you know really didn't even want to have to do is is actually consider. Um, you know, maybe a partial closure or, or, or a temporary closure, but now, um, I, you know, and again, not to scare everybody and, and, and John, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what your, your opinion is on exactly yeah. at this point. Mine, mine has been fluid. Yeah, it is. Um, but you know, I, I think that it's important to, if you haven't already started, you know, talking about it and, and you probably mm-hmm. have, but, to, you know, cause I, I think it's, it's becoming that it's, it's a possibility. Cause even if it, even if it isn't something that's mandated, um, you know, there, there's some facilities that are closed, not because it was a decision they made, but it's because there was an exposure right. in, within their facility. And I think as the cases rise and as more people are tested and more positives come out, I think it's only a matter of time before, you know, you're going to find out one way or another, you're going to be notified, either you're going to have somebody, you're going to, you're going to come into contact with somebody who, who then, you know, because of your screening, uh, maybe somebody that, that did make it to your site or, or, or one of your staff members is going to, is going to be diagnosed or somebody in, in their household, um, or, you know, or you're going to get a call from, the department of health that says, Hey, you know, this patient that is in the hospital that is tested positive said that they, uh, they had a procedure there last week. Yeah. And, uh, and then you have to react to that. And from what I understand, you know, the facilities that have had, you know, unfortunately had to, you know, had to, had to deal with that type of situation, you know, at that point, when you're talking about a, an actual exposure within your facility, um, you know, it sounds to me like at least the approach the, the state is taking, if it's an actual confirmed exposure, you know, you don't have much of a choice, but, um, but to have, uh, you know, your staff and, and, and the people in the facility, um, you know, quarantine. 
So that, it, you know, if obviously if you're almost your whole staff's quarantined, it would mm -hmm. be, uh, it'd be very difficult to, or impossible to, you know, to continue operations. Yes. So I, I did want to uh, remind uh, people, we've talked about this before, but I do want to remind what's going on in the surveyor activity they have. CMS has uh, mandated all routine surveyor activity um, uh, be uh, terminated at this point, so uh, you're not going to have recertification, relicensing surveys. Uh, they are. They still say that they're doing uh, pre-opening surveys. I don't see that that's going to happen, though, especially with most of the employees uh, actually being told to stay home right now. I think what we're going to find is that they're going to. Um, uh, uh, it's going to be hard to get a surveyor out there to do something, and they're going to anybody that it does go out is going to be responding to an immediate uh, jeopardy situation with an infection control issue, and only that. We do have a question again. Uh, this is a repeat question, uh, and I think this is just to ask us if anything has changed since we went on the air about an hour and a half ago. Uh, is there any word? Um, uh, I, this individual has stated that De Blasio has put an executive order in to close all. To, I'm sorry, to close all elective surgery for hospital and voluntary. Uh, does that include us, meaning an ASC? I know Jenna and Alex both are listening, and they have logged yes. off. If they have an update on that, John, do you have an update on it? I don't at this point. No, I I, I do not. I haven't. Um, and we can't confirm this. Uh, we uh, I don't I don't know where this is coming from because, according to Jenna and Alex, who have been listening, um, they have not been able to confirm that this is what De Blasio said. And I don't know that they heard the beginning of the press Correct. conference, so we're really not sure. Yeah, we've been trying to. So I can't answer that it. question right now. We will. Um, we will post it. Uh, I'll tell you what. I'll post it on LinkedIn. If I hear this, that might be the fastest mm -hmm. way to get it out to everybody. And if anybody else has has um, heard that, definitely, or or has or any can other give us information. A link. Yep. Right. Yep. Can do that. And, and, and John, to your point earlier, that brings up the you know if that is the case, and again they're using the the term you know elective, non-essential, whatever you right. know. There's that doesn't necessarily mean doesn't necessarily mean that AS. Well, it doesn't mean that ASCs are closed. Right. It doesn't necessarily mean that your ASC should or will close. I mean, I think that all that all depends, and that's right. why. Um, I think it's important. I know I'm going to be meeting with with my board tomorrow morning just to discuss that very topic okay mm -hmm. you know what 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 are elective procedures if we're told that we can't do elective procedures which procedures are, and, and how are we going to handle that how right. whose whose decision is that and how is that decision going to be made and documented and, and everything you know like that so that's right you know it's i think that's it's a, it's important not to figure that out because i do feel like there's probably a good chance that there's going to be at least um you know, temporarily, and it might not be the whole state, but, you know, certainly in certain areas of the state, there is going to be a mandate to discontinue or to put off elective, you know, surgeries and using that or non-essential. And again, that's, you know, then we're going to have to figure that one out. Um, and again, keep in mind that other things could happen, like in California and Boston, where they are uh, sheltering in place, that, that could have an impact on uh, what's happening. It hasn't happened in New York, let's make that clear. It has ha not happened in any area of New York that we're aware of at this point. We'll keep monitoring that. Um, let me just repeat. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Sue. No, I didn't. Do you want me to just mention? Uh, I didn't read it, so go ahead. One of our uh, facilities just um, wrote, and she just said that she um, – her facility is going to com complete all elective cases on the schedule this week. And then beginning Monday the 23rd, they'll do only 
urgent elective cases. And the staff will be brought in to catch up on everything we can catch up on and complete mandatory training. Um, and, and that they're just continually revisiting that plan. But that sounds like something that a lot right. of people may end up doing, just thank trying you, Donna. to kind of wrap those up. She's from Westchester. And then I mm -hmm. did have a phone call with uh, one of our clients in Queens who, uh, uh, same thing, they're going to be continuing this week, and then they will shut. No, I'm sorry, they're a clinic and surgery center. They're shutting down the clinic on Friday. And then uh, they're keeping the surgery center open, but that's a fluid situation. We have another center in Queens in Astoria that uh, hasn't made a decision yet, but they are seriously considering closing also. Uh, Jackie, I know uh, we are watching the YouTube video. We just can't confirm that, uh, that uh, Mayor DeVazio has said that. I think it's safer to say at this point, as far as we know right now, um, surgery centers are not being mandated. Again, let's just repeat, there is no mandate at this point for surgery centers to shut down. Um, if there is a mandate coming down, it doesn't mean that a surgery center, if there's a mandate that comes down, most likely mm -hmm. it would be to discontinue elective surgery. Um, yeah. Certainly that is a recommendation of many of the major uh, professional organizations. Um, but and, that does not mean all surgery. So I think kind of thinking elective surgery, okay, they're going to shut down, but not everything is elective in Correct. In Thank you. Um, I do want to remind yeah. everyone about survey. Did I already say this? I'm going to talk yes. about that. Yeah. Um, okay. Anything else? Any other questions? We have anything on our feeds? No? Okay. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll continue to update you. So a couple things. Please, I know I've said this before, but I'm not, I keep watching the people. I'm, I keep getting people logging in, so I don't know how many of you have already listened to this. So uh, please go to ASCPodcast.com. We'll, uh, we'll try to update that. That is a little bit behind uh, in being updated. We'll, uh, we'll meet my staff. We'll meet this evening after uh, dinner, and we'll uh, update that page. Um, friend me or whatever that term is on LinkedIn. Um, on link, uh, LinkedIn uh, asked uh, to connect with me on LinkedIn. It's John Gailey, G-O-E-H-L-E. -E. I see a lot of you on, during the podcast have done that. Uh, and we, uh, we keep uh, uh, updating that uh, information as time goes on, and I'll, I'll update through the night if we get more information. Uh, we will uh, probably do another podcast tomorrow. No uh, guarantee on that one. Uh, we most likely will not have one on Wednesday since I have in, uh, been engaged to do a speaking engagement, believe it or not. Um, uh, not in person, don't worry. It's all electronic. Uh, so we probably won't have time to do it then, but we will revisit uh, periodically when it would be appropriate to have a podcast. Uh, we do have uh, some legal things that we have to do for wrap-up. Uh, that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again, and please consider becoming a patron member by going to our website at ASCPodcast.com and spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. I do want to point out also, I forgot to mention this before, we're treating all of our uh, our non-clients uh, like clients right now. So if you uh, send me an email address, I'd be glad to in uh, include you in our uh, our uh, daily updates that we send out to our clients. So this is much the same stuff that we put on the podcast. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, and Lori Rodericks. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah. The ASC podcast with John Gailey is hosted on, the pod, on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. 
This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. Thank you to our sponsor, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. For more information about our services, please visit our website at ah-strategies.com. If you are interested in advertising or sponsoring with the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ascpodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ascpodcast.com. Let me uh, emphasize that last one there. Uh, we are taking uh, and answering as many emails as we can. And uh, any questions that you have will help us to figure out what uh, the needs are out there. And we'll, uh, we'll consider them for the podcast and also try to respond to them uh, uh, directly if we can. Thank you so much for your time today, everyone. <laughs>